Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Australian Military History Podcast. Trust you all had a pleasant few weeks since we last caught up. The next couple of episodes, we're going to cover an event which isn't spoken much of in our military history circles. They don't speak of it, because at best it's an embarrassment to the higher echelons of our World War II command, and at worst, it was criminal neglect of Australian troops by those same higher echelons. But before we peel the scab off this dirty little secret, don't forget to check out our website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, for maps and photos relevant to this episode, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. The youngest of my offspring is constantly putting up some very interesting posts. Stuff I've never seen before, so she's making me look a bit ordinary, which isn't hard. And of course, if there's anything you would like me to cover on a future episode, or if you'd just like to say good day, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. And I've recently realised that at some stage, I stopped requesting that you drop me a review at iTunes. So if you know how to do that, then please do it as it's possibly the best way you can help grow this podcast. And finally, before we kick off, I was recently contacted by Tim Etherington, who is a project officer with the Office of Australian Wargraves. I probably don't need to tell you just what an important job the Wargraves people do, but I will anyway. Dotted at various places around Australia, New Guinea, Torres Strait and some Pacific Islands, are 76 official war cemeteries and 8 gardens of remembrance. The graves of fallen Australian servicemen in these areas are cared for and maintained by the staff and they also ensure that any service member who passes away as a result of their service is provided with an appropriate memorial. Most major cemeteries also include service graves and the office also takes care of those as well. Tim has kindly provided some links to the locations of the war cemeteries and gardens of remembrance and I've included those in the show notes. If you're travelling around or happen to live near one of these sites, I encourage you to pop in and spend a bit of time looking around and paying a few respects to our fallen. Thanks, Tim, for getting in touch. So, time to get on with it. What were you blithering about at the start of this episode, you may well ask. What is this embarrassing, neglectful event of which you speak? Well, if you've read the title of this episode, you'll know that it's about the fall of Rabaul in the opening stages of the Pacific War. This episode... We'll look at the events leading up to and including the Japanese invasion, and in the next episode, we'll cover the events as the defenders of Rabaul attempted to evade capture. By now, you all know that when it comes to pronounce, 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 saying foreign names properly, I tend to struggle. But on this occasion, I thought I'd get smart and use the intertubes to find out the correct pronunciation for this port town in New Britain. I've never really been sure if it's Rabaul or Rabaul. But now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I can certainly, and without equivocation, inform you that Google doesn't have a clue either. I've found posts which support each option. And so I reckon, because Hall is spelt H-A-U-L, and there's an A-U-L on the end of this one, I'm going to say Rabaul. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. 
To understand the events which led to the stationing of Australian troops in Rabaul in the early 1940s, we need to go back a couple of decades. Those of you with impressive memories will recall that in our episode on the Royal Australian Navy in World War I, we mentioned that Australia's first combat operation of the war actually took place at Rabaul. At that stage, New Britain was a possession of Germany. To ensure that Allied ships, particularly Australian ships, could move about without interference from German ships, Rabaul had to be removed from their possession. A quick look at the map will tell you why. Rabaul sits on the northeastern point of New Britain and is protected from direct attack by New Ireland off the east coast. But east of New Ireland, there is nothing but the deep blue waters of the Pacific Ocean. Whoever holds Rabaul controls the southwest Pacific. At the end of the war, as part of the redistribution of German possessions, control of New Guinea, New Britain and New Ireland was given to Australia. They didn't become a part of Australia, but Australia assumed responsibility for the administration and security of those areas, which more formally became known as the Mandated Territory of New Guinea. During the interwar years, life on these islands was pretty quiet and almost otherworldly. European plantation owners tried to implant European civilization among the tropical langa in their own secluded world. Copra, the dried flesh of coconuts, was the main source of income. European politics seemed a long, long way away, with people from a wide range of countries seemingly getting along just fine. Even the advent of the Second World War didn't seem to make much of an impact. It was all the way over there in Europe. Germany had no warships or troops in the area, and it seemed unlikely that they would waste manpower to take back an old possession on the other side of the world. The authorities did advocate for the unobtrusive evacuation of women and children back to the mainland, though. Just in case. But the Australian government also kind of thought that maybe they should make some kind of token effort in making sure our neck of the woods was secured. So in March, they established El Fortress Company, known as Lark Force, which was sent to Garrison Rabaul and New Ireland. Lark Force consisted of the 2nd 22nd Infantry Battalion, 17th Anti-Tank Battery, a detachment of gunners, some engineers, anti-aircraft, supply and signals detachments, and some militia and medical corps members. The main aim of Lark Force was to observe. It was never intended to act as a defensive force against enemy attack of the islands. It was all well and good, so long as the war stayed in Europe. But what about them Japanese fellows? This was a question which was being asked more and more throughout the Pacific in 1941. They hadn't acted in any real aggressive manner in the Pacific, but they were giving Manchuria a bit of what for, and had been for nearly a decade. America had placed embargoes on them to try and convince them to get their troops out of Manchuria. But the conquest of that land had cost the Japanese many hundreds of thousands of casualties. They couldn't just give it all up because some white men from another country didn't approve of their colonising activities. I mean, the white men have been colonising for centuries, haven't they? The standard had been well and truly set. And to be honest, they do have a point. Sort of. But those sanctions were starting to bite. To maintain their hold, they needed many things, mostly oil and iron ore. But Japan itself didn't produce any of the things that they needed. And so, as you well know, they headed into the Pacific to seize what they needed. Malaya, Singapore and the Philippines fell in remarkably quick succession. And now, all of a sudden, the war was getting uncomfortably close. You would expect that the records of this force would show some concern as to the possibility of meeting the Japanese. But try as I might, I've not found anything. 
It's quite telling, though, that the unit diaries of the 2nd 22nd have only been recorded up to the end of November 1941. The routine orders for the 25th of November contained nary a word on preparations for possible defence of the port. However, you'll no doubt be very interested to know that the Rebaul Comforts Fund dance was to be held on the 29th of November and was to be the last dance of the series. The band had openings for cornet players and one tenor horn player and there was to be a board of survey to inquire into and report on damaged clothing within the unit. So as you can see, important things were taking place. This is also the final routine order contained in the War Memorial Archives. If you know anything about World War II, which I'm sure you do, you'll know that a short 12 or so days later, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbour. They then scooted on down the Malayan Peninsula and bungled the Americans out of the Philippines. Chances are that any further unit diaries had been lost during the events which would soon overtake the garrison. The official history does state that back in October, the Australian Chiefs of Staff recommended to the War Cabinet that they should accept an American proposal for the Yanks to provide equipment, including mines, anti-submarine nets, anti-aircraft equipment and radar, to make Rabaul Harbour a bit more secure and to expand it as a base for the British and American fleets. The War Cabinet said that would be lovely and they even sent a team to Rabaul in November to have a squeeze and come up with a bit of a plan. But then the war happened. The Cabinet decided that the program was unlikely to be implemented. They wanted to retain Rabaul as an advanced observation line, but it was unlikely that the force would be reinforced. The reason for this was that it would be difficult and a bit dangerous to transport such a force and to maintain it. The official history goes on to say that, quote, the Chiefs of Staff concluded that, Though the scale of attack which could be brought against Rabaul from bases in the Japanese-mandated islands was beyond the capacity of the small garrison to repel, the enemy should be made to fight for the island rather than it should be abandoned at the first threat. End quote. Isn't that interesting? The chiefs knew that the garrison had no chance but wouldn't reinforce them and also ordered that despite having no chance, they should fight on for as long as possible anyway. To add insult to injury, at about the same time, those same chiefs approved the dispatch of 21 officers and 312 other ranks to Numea, capital of New Caledonia. Granted, it's a bit further south than Rabaul, but there is absolutely no natural defensive features around the island, and with the wide blue ocean surrounding it, it's difficult to see how reinforcing Rabaul was considered too dangerous and difficult, but sending over 300 men to help the free French on New Caledonia was somehow a more acceptable risk. Either way, Lark Force was going to have to sort things out for themselves. When the plan to expand Rabaul had been made, Colonel Scanlon had been sent to establish a headquarters for the New Guinea area. He didn't make too many changes to the dispositions already in place for his 1,400 men. On New Year's Day, though, he did issue an order stating, There shall be no withdrawal, which he underlined. Now, I don't know much about Colonel Scanlon, except that he was CO of the 59th Battalion in 1918, but surely any experienced soldier would know that words to that effect don't really inspire soldiers. What he's basically saying is that regardless of the circumstances, you will die where you stand. Now, in the wild days of April 1918, when the Germans launched their spring offensive and came as close as they ever would to winning the war, Similar orders were issued to some Australian troops and it did have a galvanising effect. But only because there really was nowhere else to withdraw to. At Rabaul, these were only the opening days. 
Resolute and desperate defence from an outnumbered force would serve no purpose. There were places to fall back to. They could withdraw west to mainland New Guinea, or even go as far back as Australia. Live to fight another day, so to speak. Some of the more junior officers saw the sense in having a properly thought out and provisioned withdrawal plan. An Army Service Corps officer even had the forethought to submit a plan whereby they could hide the battalion's two-year supply of food up in the mountains at strategic places. But his report seemed to go nowhere, and the concept was never put into action. The war arrived at Rabaul at 10.30am on the 4th of January, when 22 Japanese bombers flew over at 18,000 feet and began dropping fragmentation bombs on Lakanao airfield. Of the 50 bombs dropped, only three hit the runway, causing only minimal damage. But the majority hit the native compound, killing about 15 people and wounding just as many. The anti-aircraft fire was unable to reach the high-flying bombers and the two Wirraway fighters which scrambled to intercept failed to make contact. A further 11 bombers came over New Britain later in the day with their cargo missing the airfield and only one native being killed. The following day, Flight Lieutenant Yawit took off from Kavieng and flew in the direction of Truk, 695 miles from Rabaul. What he saw probably made him give consideration to just turning around, heading to Australia and landing about as far from the war as he possibly could. A large concentration of Japanese shipping and aircraft was assembled in what could only be an invasion force, and the only place they were likely to be invading was New Ireland and New Britain. Over the next 10 days, further recon flights confirmed that the Japanese 4th Fleet was indeed massing at truck, and their own recon aircraft were ranging over New Britain. Further bombing raids were put in against Rabaul, and in trying to find something positive to say at this point, the official history states that although the anti-aircraft guns didn't hit anything, it did force the bombers to fly at high altitude, somewhat reducing their accuracy. Hey, you've got to find the positives where you can. Around midday on the 20th, the garrison received a message from Sub-Lieutenant Page of the Coast Watchers on Taybar Island. Remind me to do an episode of the Coast Watchers, truly an amazing and underreported unit. Anyway, Page told the garrison that 20 enemy aircraft were heading their way and they might like to get prepared. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to tell them about the other 33 aircraft coming in from the west. These other planes arrived at about 12.40pm. A few minutes later, a report was received from Duke of York Island that another 50 aircraft were approaching. Now, I often enjoyed taking the mickey out of the other arms of the Defence Force, being the Navy and the RAAF, but what happened at this point has to be one of the bravest yet most futile efforts you could imagine. Faced with the onslaught of enemy aircraft, two Weiraways, who were circling at 15,000 feet, and a further six who took off after hearing the warning, went to meet this onslaught. Eight aircraft against over 100. The result was a foregone conclusion. One Weiraway crashed while taking off, three were shot down, another two crash-landed, and one landed, but with its tail shot away, and only one remained undamaged. Six members of the squadron were killed, with five wounded. What can you say that even comes close to doing justice to what these men attempted? With all opposition snuffed out, the Japanese Air Force went to town, bombing, shipping, airfields, wharves and anything else that looked nice and juicy. The raid lasted three quarters of an hour and inflicted an immense amount of damage. The 21st saw no further air attacks, but that was far from a good sign. A signal had been intercepted stating that four enemy cruisers were 65 miles away at Kaviang 
on their way to Rabaul. The invasion was on its way. Lieutenant Colonel Carr of the 2nd 22nd Battalion, along with his adjutant, Captain Smith, called in the Colonel Scanlon's area headquarters where Scanlon informed them that he expected the Japanese cruisers to arrive sometime around 10pm that night. And, far from his earlier bluster that there would be no retreat, he advised the two officers that he, quote, did not intend to allow his troops to be massacred by naval gunfire, end quote. He ordered Carr to move his troops from Malaguna, an exposed position in Simpson Harbour, to Raluana, along with an improvised company under Captain Shear. Now, I've had a look at the map, and to me, Raluna appears to be much more exposed than Malaguna. It sits on the southern point at the entry to Blanche Bay, which leads into Simpson Harbour. Malaguna sits deep inside that harbour, but obviously the man on the ground could tell more than what I could by looking at a map. But it does seem a curious move. Everyone was ordered to be ready to move immediately, but Scanlon didn't want to alarm his troops, so he ordered Carr to inform them that the move was only an exercise. This meant that, because it was only an exercise, many of the troops didn't have any hard rations with them, or quinine or anything else that may come in handy if they were required to, I don't know, retreat through the jungle ahead of a rampaging Japanese army? The Japanese cruisers hadn't arrived by 10pm that night, but by early on the 22nd, all the Allied aircraft had been evacuated and the airstrip blown up. Shortly after, at about 8am, the Japanese Air Force struck again, this time with 45 dive bombers. They first attacked at Vinokanao a little bit inland. Captain Apple and his company responded with rifles and machine guns, but had little effect. The aircraft then turned their attention to artillery on Prade Point on the opposite headland from Ralayuna. That battery, well, it stuck out like dog's balls. During the construction, all the trees in the area had been flattened and the undergrowth cleared, so the gun emplacements themselves were totally devoid of cover. And there was a dirty great sealed road leading straight to them. All the Japanese pilots had to do was follow the road and drop their bombs at the end of it. You may be starting to see the effects of sending largely untrained personnel to set up a defensive garrison. You'd have to think that none of the senior NCOs or junior officers currently fighting in North Africa would have allowed a battery to be so devoid of cover. The end result was that the main coastal battery defending the entrance to Rabaul was silenced. 11 men were killed and the survivors were dazed and wandering about the area with no idea what had hit them and what they were supposed to do now. So by early morning on the 22nd, the Air Force had evacuated, the airfield had been demolished and the coastal battery destroyed. Scanlon decided that the entire role of the garrison force had now been nullified. He ordered that key infrastructure, which had so far survived the bombing, was to be destroyed and the township evacuated. At 3.30pm, Scanlon received news from the commander of the anti-aircraft battery that an enemy convoy was approaching. Major MacLeod was sent to confirm the sighting and reported that he saw 11 steamships steaming south. It consisted of destroyers, cruisers, transports and an aircraft carrier. At 4pm, the engineers blew up a supply of bombs and the blast shattered the valves of the headquarters teleradio. This teleradio was the garrison's only means of contact with the outside world. They were now unable to report their situation, request reinforcement or resupply, or even organise an evacuation. Now they really were on their own. Scanlon reckoned that the most likely landing places would be in the harbour, which if they managed to cut across the narrow isthmus towards Talili Bay, the Japanese would cut off a substantial portion of Scanlon's force. 
he ordered the troops in that area to move to a point on the south of Blanche Bay. There is a map on the website that shows the eventual dispositions for those who wish to see a bit more detail. But for the rest, just know that the majority of the force had abandoned Rabaul and were now in either of two positions along the southern side of the harbour, or further inland a couple of miles. The field ambulance, along with six nurses, were sent further along the coast to what was thought to be the safety of the Venupope mission at Kokopo. It would not prove to be a safe haven at all. The troops prepared their positions as best they could. With the gun positions lost and the anti-aircraft guns also gone, the men who had operated them were dispersed among the infantry platoons. Major Selby and his men were sent to reinforce Captain Shear at Reloana. Selby later wrote, My men had had no infantry training, neither had I. We climbed into the two trucks and moved on through Telegap. A misty rain was falling, the road was a slippery ribbon of mud and lights were forbidden. We went at a walking pace down the narrow twisting road, a gunner walking in front with his hand on the mudguard to guide me through the darkness. It was nearly midnight when we reached Raliana and we were given a most welcome cup of soup, our first refreshment since lunchtime. Captain Shear and I walked around the defences. There was wire on the beach and only one short length of trench had been dug. On Shear's orders, I placed the Vickers gun and its crew on the beach and posted five gunners with rifles to cover it. The rest of us were ordered to proceed to the old German battery position a few hundred yards up the hill where we were to support the troops on the beach. End quote. So what can we take from that little passage? Well, basically a Vickers gun, with a crew that was unfamiliar with infantry tactics, supported by five rifles, similarly unfamiliar, was to guard a section of the beach. Those troops were covered by other gunners, unfamiliar with infantry tactics. The defences are pretty rudimentary. A bit of wire and part of a trench. Hardly where I would choose to be, given that a full Japanese invasion force was heading their way. At Vulcan Crater, roughly halfway along the curve of Blanche Bay, Major Owen of the 2nd 22nd had set up his company headquarters. Just after midnight, he heard the hum of approaching aircraft and parachute flares appeared in the sky, illuminating the harbour. At about 1am, landing craft were seen making their way to shore. The Japanese had finally arrived. The soldier from Lieutenant Grant's platoon said later, We could see dimly the shapes of boats and men getting out. As they landed, the Japanese were laughing, talking and striking matches. One of them even shone a torch. We allowed most of them to get out of the boats and then fired everything we had. In my section, we had a Lewis gun, one Tommy gun and eight rifles. The Vickers guns also opened up with us. We gave them water to the position and in a matter of minutes they were sending their bombs over. End quote. It sounds like a pretty flimsy response. World War I era machine guns, a handful of rifles and some mortars. But they actually held off two determined attempts to rush their position. Changing plans, the Japanese worked their way around the flank. By 2.30am, the right-hand platoon reported that the enemy were moving up the ravines from Caravia Bay, a bit to the south of Owen's position. Shortly after, the phone line between company and battalion headquarters was cut. But some of the Japanese were carrying flags and their comrades rallied towards those flags. And so, with a nice visible target, the Australians poured in machine gun and rifle fire. The Japanese advance was checked and they took cover in the hills. Captain Shear's company, on the other hand, did not fare so well. Remember, they had only arrived in their positions that night, hadn't had time to prepare defensive positions and were using inexperienced gunners as part of their strength. At 2.45am, 
the Japanese landed and easily overran the forward sections of company headquarters. Shear gave the order to withdraw, platoon by platoon, towards vehicles which were waiting for them. At about 3.30, the rear guard fired upon infiltrating Japanese troops, and by 3.50, the entire company, with gunners attached, were on trucks making their way back towards Telila Gap. For the next two hours, the Japanese concentrated on establishing themselves in Rabaul itself. Transport after transport arrived at the harbour, while landing craft continued to land troops. As the sun rose shortly before six o'clock, Lieutenant Grant advised Owen that his ammunition was exhausted and two supply runs were made, which was just as well. Soon after the platoon was resupplied, they witnessed the landing of another Japanese party. They opened fire and the party was forced to disperse. The Japanese lost one machine gun and its crew when Private Seligari, a farm labourer from Cavendish, Victoria, attacked with his light machine gun. But no matter how hard the troops fought, the Japanese numbers were always going to prevail. In what would prove to be their signature tactic, they locked the Australians in place with a frontal attack while pushing a force around the flank with the intention to cut off the path of withdrawal. Owen's men were being attacked by low-flying aircraft, ships in the harbour were shelling his position, and his only viable line of retreat was being threatened. He had no choice but to fall back. He ordered Grant to pull his platoon back to four ways, about a mile inland, and if that position had been captured, able to move further west to Kokopo. Due to the cut phone lines, Owen had no idea what was happening on the other company fronts. The silence at Raliana must have been a bit ominous from Owen's headquarters. Had they all been killed? Had they fallen back? Were they simply not fighting? Where were the Japanese in that area? Lieutenant Colonel Carr was probably asking himself the same questions. He'd not heard from Shear nor Owen since 3am. His other company, under Major Travers, was ordered to move from four ways to prepared positions at Talila Gap to cover the Kokopo Ridge Road. As the sun rose, Carr could see 31 vessels in the harbour, including landing craft. He may not have known exactly what Owen's position was, but judging from the build-up in the harbour, Owen must be in a tough spot. The 2nd 22nd Intelligence Officer, Lieutenant Dawson, was sent to Owen's position to lead them from the beach. Dawson wrote, I set off in a car with the driver and an intelligence orderly. On turning the last curve before the mission, we saw there in the middle of the road a full platoon of Japs and several natives. With them was one of the local German missionaries shaking hands with an officer who appeared to be the platoon commander. I'd seen the German earlier in the morning and he had then impressed me as being very pleased about something. The impression I had was that the natives had led the Japs up the track because it was utterly impossible to find it from the lower end. That was the reason I was going down to lead A Company out. The Japs opened fire at a range of about 50 yards. The car stopped. End quote. Private Curly Smith was killed, but the driver, Private Kennedy, and Lieutenant Dawson were able to escape into the bush. Carr was unaware of the encounter, and so he informed Scanlon that Owen had been ordered to withdraw. Scanlon ordered McInnes's company to move astride the Kokopo Road at three ways to cover Owen's withdrawal. It's all getting a bit confusing, isn't it? Companies falling back on their own initiative, battalion headquarters not being aware of this and sending orders for the withdrawals, and other companies being ordered to cover the withdrawals ordered by battalion, which aren't actually happening because the companies have conducted their own withdrawals. Got it? This is what happens when contingency plans aren't put in place long before the event and communicated to all subordinate commanders. They're left to try and sort things out for themselves. 
Brubbers had his men in position astride the Kokopo Ridge Road and were digging in on a 2,000-yard front by about 3.10am. He had the troops digging in and sent a patrol to Delilagap Mission at 5am. About half an hour later, the survivors from Shears Company arrived at Travis's headquarters. They'd had a tough time. The track leading from Rolana was slippery and steep, and because of the proximity of the enemy, the trucks had to travel without lights. Some of the trucks had slid off the track along the way and had to be abandoned. Travers reported their arrival to Carr, who ordered one of Shears' platoons under Lieutenant Tolmer to remain with Travers and for the rest to head back to four ways to form part of the battalion reserve. Happy to have a few extra blokes on his team, Travers sent Tolmer off to the left flank to a position already under attack from low-flying aircraft. Enemy aircraft were also making life uncomfortable for the troops at three ways under McInnes, Werner Kanau under Apple and company reserves at four ways. They were under near constant attack by dive bombers and fighter aircraft, but so far had not seen any enemy troops. But that was about to change. Can I just take a minute here to apologise for all the names being thrown around? I realise it's difficult to keep track of, but when you've got platoons and bits of companies floating around all over the place, Naming the blokes in charge of each group is the only viable way of keeping track and telling you which group is doing what. So anyway, McInnes had posted two machine guns along Kokopo Ridge Road to link up with Travers Company. But soon after Grant's arrival, those machine gun crews reported they had been surrounded and were forced to withdraw. Soon after, three ways came under enemy fire from a nearby ridge. At about 8.30, Apple contacted McInnes to inform him that Grant's platoon had pulled back from their position at Vulcan and arrived at three ways. He then said that his own position had become untenable and so would have to withdraw and requested McInnes to provide covering fire. Major Mollard had been sent forward by a battalion to coordinate the defence along Kokopo Ridge Road. He advised the Major that from his position he could see that if McInnes could hold his position and link up with Travers, they would have a strong defensive line. The Japanese would be forced to attack from the exposed kunai grass instead of the concealed bush. He also advised that if McInnes was unable to hold, then the whole position would be lost. It appears, at least from the official history, that Mollard had no intention of defending Kokopo Ridge Road. Far from ordering McInnes to hold his position and cover Apple's withdrawal, he ordered Apple to hold the line while McInnes withdrew along with Grant and then to bring his own troops to the junction of Bamboo and to Villa Roads. He was told to hold at the junction until all other withdrawing troops had passed through. Mollard then proceeded with all haste to Four Ways to order its evacuation. It was about 9 o'clock by this stage and all available transport was requisitioned and loaded with troops as they arrived. At about 10am, Mollard ordered McInnes to commence his withdrawal. Trucks were soon speeding westwards under constant air attack. Back at battalion headquarters, Carr was also starting to feel the urgency. He had moved his headquarters back from Noah's mission to Glade Road at about 8am and from that point on was out of phone contact with his companies. He did have dispatch riders, but you can probably guess that with groups of men falling back, others digging in and others God knows where, dispatch riders would have been less than effective. Carr did still have telephone communication with Scanlon though. Rumours were spreading fast, particularly the one that said that the Japanese were coming on in their thousands. Certainly, the Japanese Air Force was there in strength as battalion headquarters was copying the same treatment that just about every other form position was receiving. Then, while trying to sort out fact from fiction, trucks full of retreating Australians began to arrive. The adjutant and RSM attempted to stop the vehicles 
and get the troops to form some kind of defensive perimeter. But the troops insisted the Japanese were coming and just simply refused to stop. Carr decided that this must indeed mean the Japanese were coming on in force and so reluctantly he ordered battalion headquarters to also withdraw back to Scanlon's position at Tomovatur. Scanlon, who was also completely in the dark as to exactly where everyone was, soon saw the truck streaming past his headquarters and decided that it was all over. He ordered Carr to withdraw his battalion to the Karabat River, which is quite laughable when you think about it. The battalion was scattered, some heading west, some south, some on foot, and most in trucks. How Carr was supposed to form a battalion defensive position in one spot is anyone's guess. Carr diplomatically pointed this out to Scanlon, who decided that the northern troops should go on to Karabat, the centre to Warangai, and the rest to Malabunga Road. But again, how this was going to be communicated to the desperate troops is anyone's guess. Scanlon then told Carr that it was now every man for himself. Great leadership in a crisis, you've got to say. Carr ordered his signals to contact anyone they could to advise them to fall back in small groups. He posted a picket at the Malabunga Road Junction to direct any trucks coming that way to the various positions Scanlon had ordered. But as you can no doubt tell, this was no longer an ordered withdrawal. This was a rout. But, I hear you say, what about Travers down there on Kokobo Ridge Road? You have not mentioned anything about him withdrawing. Well, dear listener, that's because he hadn't withdrawn. Since about 8am, Travers had no contact with headquarters back at Three Ways as the phone line had been cut. In the dark as to what was happening elsewhere, Travers assessed his situation. His greatest threat was the possibility of an attack on his rear from the Balkan area, so he ordered two platoons, under Sergeants Morris and Lomas, to occupy a knoll 500 yards to the rear. Company headquarters set themselves up between these two platoons and Lieutenant Tolmer on the left flank. Captain Donaldson remained in his position facing Kokopo to protect the right flank. As an interesting aside, Sergeant Morris would later be captured by the Japanese and wound up on the Montevideo Maru along with other Australian POWs. On 1st of July 1942, an Allied submarine would sink the ship and Sergeant Morris was among the 1,054 men who were lost. At about 11.30, Private Holmes called out that two natives were approaching. Tolma came to Holmes and saw the two natives with Japanese troops behind them. He and Holmes killed the two natives and about 10 Japanese. At the same time, Japanese troops attacked Donaldson's position and company headquarters. Some of the attackers were held at Gaskin's house, but others pushed around the left flank and cut the company off from their only transport. Figuring there were no other options left, Travers set about conducting an orderly withdrawal of his men. At midday, he pulled Tolma back to Talilagap and soon came under fire from machine guns on a knoll to the right. Lomas and Tolma were ordered to pull back further through Donaldson's company to meet up with Apple's company, who they mistakenly believed was still holding Vernacanau. Lomas withdrew in good order, passing through Donaldson and heading to Vennacanau. Tomer arrived at Donaldson's position at about quarter past one with orders to hold there while the remainder of the company fell back. At 2pm, Travers ordered his remaining platoons to pull back to his position at Tallulah Gap. He then ordered Donaldson to advance along the Kokopo Road and recapture two medium machine gun trucks which had been cut off 300 yards to the west. Donaldson set off, covered by Tolmer's platoon, and soon came under small arms and mortar fire. He reached Morris's platoon along the road and asked Morris to cover his attack from the left. The attack by Donaldson was probably one of the only high points of the day, 
Lance Corporal Simpson and Corporal Sloan, at different times, charged forward firing their Tommy guns and killing upwards of 30 Japanese troops. The two trucks were recovered, with the Australians suffering only one casualty. At 3.10, Travers ordered his company to pull back in its entirety. They were harassed by the Japanese throughout the withdrawal, with air attacks and mortars following them to the Toma Road, where they arrived at around 5pm. The men spent the night in a narrow valley, and in the morning they split up into small parties to try and make their escape as best they could. That was the last bit of organised resistance on New Britain. These poorly trained and poorly equipped men had fought hard, and many had shown great courage and skill. But they never had a chance. The lack of preparation for an assault and lack of contingency planning doomed these men to defeat. Unfortunately, this is not the end of the story for Lark Force. Over the following days and weeks, they would be subjected to starvation, exhaustion, disease and the constant threat of capture by Japanese troops as they tried to make their escape. But New Britain is an island. How do you escape an island that is now swarming with enemy troops? That is a story for the next episode. I'll catch you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.